Welcome to Walking in Faith, a weekly podcast dedicated to examining the Bible to help lifelong seekers of the kingdom of God expand their faith and understanding by exploring God's Word. Now let's join Pastor Rob Currington as he shares this week's message. Would you agree with me that no one likes change? Is there anyone here that likes change? Anyone here? Anyone here just hate change? You hate it when some, yeah. Now, we typically like change if we're the ones who get to decide what the change is, right? But typically, we don't like someone coming in and rearranging our schedule. Our, our, you know, we like to stay within our comfort zone. Even, even as a church here, you know, I was just thinking uh, last night, uh, you guys have heard me say before, one of the first things when I came to candidate here in this church, way back when, it's been almost... 15 years since I left Brea. Does it seem like that? I mean, you're a little one. And so uh, Christian here is someone we knew up in Brea. And so it's good to have you. Thanks for being here. But um, I remember you guys had like a 20 minute just welcoming people. And I thought as soon as I become pastor, if they call me to pastor, we're ending that real quickly. Well, here we are. And, uh, you know, I wasn't able to get rid of it. You know, we, we, we tightened it up a little bit. It didn't, it didn't get to free range. And, and, and as we go, you, you go to church growth things and, and, and people and pastors and, and church growth experts will tell you, you need to get rid of the, we, the, the greet, the welcoming, you know, the shaking of hands. No one likes that. But it's interesting that for our small church, that was one of the things that everyone loved. And people who would come and visit would say, man, I can't believe how genuine it seemed. Of course, now look at it. We've now eventually have gotten rid of it. They did get rid of it. We haven't had that. And is that not one of the things that you miss? If you look at our services, we're doing everything but that. We shut down a few songs, shorten the services a little bit. But there seems to be a gapping hole in that. And I'll have to tell you, and I was thinking about that. I was thinking, I was the one who was wanting to get rid of it at first. But now I'm one of the ones that miss it the most. Just being able to get around and say, hello to everyone. And this, this change here, everyone's saying is uh, the, the new normal. How many hate that term, the new normal? Yeah, I, I do as well. I do as well. And I, I'm waiting for things to go back to normal. But I was talking to one of our fire, uh, fire guys. And, and um, one of the things that he's the, in charge of the EMS. So he's, he's a medical nurse. He says, this probably is the new normal. He says, mask will probably be the new normal for when you go to a hospital or restaurants and things like that. He goes, it's just going to be. Maybe not as we're going around as we are now, but he says going into public buildings, most likely you're going to see that as the, as the new normal. It's not communion today. We're not doing, we're not doing a communion chips. And so it's one of those things that we just don't like it. I think that's one of the things as we look in this time of age right now, what we're going through, we just don't like it. We're getting outside of our comfort zone. We're going to see that a little bit today as we talk about the life of Christ. Now, last week, Luke narrates that second conflict between the religious leaders and Jesus. They didn't like it uh, when, he had, when he was invited to Levi. Remember Matthew, the tax collector? Jesus goes to their house for a feast. And, and to them, that, that's not right. These people are social outcasts. These are people that are sinners. They're reprobates. They're, they, they don't consider them as someone that is a part of society. And in that, we look to challenge ourselves to view people the way that Jesus does. See, when Jesus sees people, he doesn't see them as you and I do. He sees them as people in need of a Savior. 
And when Levi looked at Jesus and he looked at his friends, he didn't say, now that I'm following Jesus, my friends I need to leave behind and now just follow Jesus. No, I want to take my friends with them. Jesus was someone that they wanted their friends to meet. You know, we think of that when scripture says, do not be ashamed of me. Who's ever ashamed of me, I will, I will, I will not accept you. But we have to realize that many times as Christians, we begin to follow Jesus and all of a sudden we're embarrassed of that decision. We're embarrassed of Jesus and our church and of the gospel message. Or we saw that the view of the Pharisees, remember the Pharisees, they just view everyone as below them and they, they, were, superior, they were superior to everyone else. But we see that Jesus views people differently. And we learn the importance of repentance. As Jesus says, I've called sinners to repentance. So there are many today that would say repentance is something that needs to go by the wayside. Repentance was for back then and maybe it's for the new kingdom, but it's not for today. You do not need to repent today. However, as we go through Luke, you're going to see that repentance is a prerequisite. It is necessary for salvation. Without repentance, there is no salvation. There is no hope. Now so far in Luke's gospel we've seen that Jesus' mission is that he is able and willing to cleanse us by forgiving us of our sins as he calls us to repentance. In today's passage we look at Luke chapter 5 verses 33 through 39 Luke is going to continue with an observation by the crowd at the feast of Levi's house. And what we're going to see is this observation is going to bring up the third conflict between the religious leaders and Jesus regarding his ministry. So with that, Luke chapter 5, you have it on the screen. Please also turn your Bible as we'll be going through that. And let's start in verse 33. And they said to him, the disciples of John fast often and offer prayers. And so do the disciples of the Pharisees. But yours eat and drink. And Jesus said to them, Can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. So, Father, as we open up this portion of Scripture, help us to understand, give us wisdom, discernment. Let us know the difference between uh, just my mere opinion, uh, Father, which can be just filtered out uh, like the chaff with the wind. But Lord, let us understand what the truth that's found here in Scripture. And I pray that you would help us to respond as the Holy Spirit calls us to. We thank you for Luke's gospel. We thank you for those that are here for this ordained moment. In your name we pray. Amen. Now, as we continue in Luke's narrative, we notice that instead of the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious leaders confronting Jesus, it seems that it might become, it might be those that are eating with Jesus at Levi's house. Now, as you may recall from last week, most devout people would not have considered the attendees at this feast religious or righteous. Most of Levi's friends probably are not even welcome at the synagogue or to attend the temple. They were considered outcasts and outsiders from the religious and social communities around that area. However, that doesn't mean that they did not notice and were aware of the practices of the Mosaic law and the different religious groups. In other words, they saw how people uh, worshipped. And they are wondering as they're eating with Jesus. This is someone they've seen healed. They've heard of him healing. They've heard of his teaching. And now they're sitting with Jesus. And you can almost imagine they're wondering, why is Jesus eating with us? They're like the Pharisees. Why, why would this happen? 
Why would he intermingle with us? Does he not know who we are? Why doesn't Jesus fast like the disciples of John the Baptist and the Pharisees? He worships differently. The questions are more than an observation. As John MacArthur writes that it comes across more as a kind of a, a critical rhetorical question. It's not like they're looking so much for an answer. They're just making a critical observation. He doesn't worship and act like them. He's different. In other words, why do you not express your devotion like everyone else, like it's normal people do. Now, this is a good reminder for us that even though people may not join in our beliefs or accept our beliefs, people are watching how we worship. And I think uh, this is a side note, and I don't want to get political, but I guess I am. This is one of the reasons why I believe it's so important for us to meet together. Some are saying, well, we should not meet together because it's a bad testimony to the world because you're not following guidelines. You're not doing this. You're not doing that. However, I think that it's a good testimony that we do love each other and we're meeting to worship a God. In other words, we as a church, we do have common sense when it comes to sickness and death and risk. However, we have to understand the, the, the sovereignty and providence of a loving, good God. And so to me, our worshiping together says, no, worshiping Jesus is more important than anything else. Now, that doesn't mean we don't take common sense uh, precautions and things of that nature. And so that's why we ask, if you're sick, if you have a fever, stay home. Please use the hand sanitizer, wear your mask in and out. Fellowship outside, all those are wonderful things and good things we should do. Probably even during the flu season, we could cut down a lot of this kind of stuff. However, people are watching us. And so if they're going to watch us, let them see us doing what God has commanded us to do with love and humbleness. That's loving your neighbor. So, okay, side note, let's go back. That was my mere opinion that you could shift like wheat, take what you want, throw the rest away. So somewhere in here is my message and I got to find it. They're wondering what Jesus is doing. And so you and I need to understand that people do watch how we worship. And they're noticing that Jesus is different. Him and his disciples are not acting like other religious people. They've noticed that Jesus and his followers do not practice in the same way as the other religious leaders. Instead of fasting often and offering up public prayers, they're eating and drinking. God forbid. Later, Luke will record that one of the accusations against Jesus is that he was a glutton and a drunkard. Uh, we're going to see that in several, probably several months as we go up to Luke chapter 7, I think maybe Luke 11. I'm sure that Levi's friends are surprised that Jesus would join them in a feast. Look at this man, he's eating and he's drinking with us. This man Jesus was ministering in a way that was foreign to them. And they're trying to make sense of it all. Now from scripture we do know that Jesus did practice fasting and prayer, but typically he did it in private. As we read in our scripture reading earlier, Jesus does not condemn the practice, but calls us to do it in a way that does not bring attention to ourself. Since we've already spent some time uh, several weeks ago looking at Jesus's practice of praying privately and the, and the purpose of that, and I can, you can go on the web and website and find that message if you're of interest, we're going to consider the concept of fasting today. And it brings up two good questions. What is fasting and should we fast today? 
And in that, we're going to see what Jesus is doing here. So first, let's consider what the question, what is fasting? Now, obviously, most of us know that fasting is refraining from some food or some type of thing that we usually do for, for a period of time, for a set uh, period of time, for a specific reason. And as you may recall, Jesus did himself fast 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness. Religious fasting in the Jewish world was observed as a sign of mourning for sin, well, and for most uh, other types of uh, cultures as well. But when we look at the Judaic and the Mosaic law, the law, the Mosaic law, only called for a fast on the day of atonement, which was required in Leviticus 16. You see it here on the monitor. Where Moses writes from the Lord, It shall be a statue to you forever that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourself. So think of that, afflict yourself. And you shall do no work, neither the native or the stranger who sojourns or lives among you. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. Remember, this is a once a year thing that they did with the sacrifice. Every year they had to do that. In verse 31, it is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you and you shall afflict yourself. It is a statue forever. Now, when you see that word afflict, it's not that old uh, thing where you're taking a whip and you're just whipping yourself. You know, that doesn't mean what afflict. Afflict has been interpreted by the Jewish laws and others as a fast, to humble yourself or to weaken yourself, to weaken yourself. The Jewish law required one fast a day on the year on the Day of Atonement, which is now we know as Yom Kippur. The Day of Atonement was a time to express sorrow for sin, uh, though Israel as a nation would have other days of national fasting as well. During the captivity, as we think of Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, during that 70 years of captivity, the Jews added four more times of fasting. Religious fasting was observed as a sign of mourning for sin with the goal to humble oneself before God. And normally it was to hold off God's wrath in pleading from deliverance. They knew that they had done something. It was to so show sorrow, to demonstrate sorrow. In scripture we see that King David and Daniel and Nehemiah observed these special times of fasting. David, when his son was sick after his, his affair with Bathsheba, uh, Daniel in contemplating Israel's sin against God, and Nehemiah for those that were returning to Jerusalem after that 70 years of captivity. But by the time of the New Testament, by the time we get to first century AD, the stricter Pharisees would, tw- would twice uh, or fast twice a week on Mondays and Thursdays as a sign of piety to show how religious and humble they were. That's kind of ironic, but that's what they would do. However, even that fasting was hypocritical. In Luke 18, we see that the attitude of the Pharisees in fasting compared to someone else was standing by himself praying, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector who was sitting next to him. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. So for them, Fasting was a sign to show that they were superior over others. See how religious I am. And many people still do that today. They attend church. They give. Maybe they give a lot. Maybe they serve. Maybe they teach. Maybe they sing. Maybe they lead in some capacity. But many times it's either out of a duty or a desire to show how pious they are, how spiritual they are. 
So when these people that are eating with Jesus, Levi's friends, ask Jesus, why don't you fast? It was a good question. Everyone fasts. Probably the tax collectors themselves would fast. To them, fasting was part of the worship. It was one of the ways to show piety. It was one of the ways to show their Jewish heritage. The religious leaders that they were familiar with were devoted to those religious works, and they they put those types of religious works and those expectations on everyone. But we also should remember that these people were on the other side of the redemption story, and we talk about the redemption story all the time need to understand where we are. This is before the cross. For them, they had to follow the Mosaic law, which meant that they had to follow these things. 365 thou shalt and thou shalt nots. What a list. And to be guilty of one is to be guilty of all. And so it was a constant thing of trying to do better, trying to be better. They were still waiting for the Messiah the anointed one, the one who would come and deliver them, not only from the Roman Empire and the occupation, but also that tyrant Herod, who wasn't even a Jew, even though he was the king of the Jews. The people wanted to be ready for when that Messiah would come. They were called to be ready. And fasting would show a renewal of commitment and preparation. We are getting ready. Lord, send your anointed one. See how humble we are. But it wasn't really truly from a humbled heart. But it came from pride and a self-righteous attitude. That's when you find both the disciples of John the Baptist and the Pharisees fasting. They were preparing their hearts for the anointed one. Now, they were wrong in many ways in which they were doing it. And it was not pleasing to God. But for them, they said, well, this is what we're doing to prepare for the anointed one. They were under the oppressing realm of both Rome and King Herod. So when they asked, why are you not fasting? In essence, they were asking, why are you not preparing yourself for the coming Messiah? Not realizing that they're speaking to the anointed one of God. There was no clue. The religious leaders observing Jesus' ministry may have even taken offense that Jesus and his disciples did not observe the extra fasting that they did. From this narrative, it even seems that some of John the Baptist's disciples must have adopted this type of fasting, this type of hard attitude in their practice while looking for the Messiah. Now, you might wonder, though, why would John the Baptist's disciples, of all the religious sects and groups there, why would John the, disciples, or John the Baptist's disciples be still fasting? Since John the Baptist had already pointed out to them that Christ, that Jesus, was the anointed one. Scripture tells us that John the Baptist made it noticeably clear in his statements about who Jesus was. In John chapter 126, John says, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to unite. Three verses later, he would say, the next day he saw Jesus coming towards him, walking towards him. And he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That's where John and James first met Jesus down there in Judea before we come here to the events here of Luke. So they have heard him say, this is Jesus. They saw John the Baptist baptize Jesus and heard the rumblings as the father spoke, this is my son. 
in whom I'm well pleased. Unfortunately, only some of his disciples joined Jesus, while others continued to follow John's teachings. His disciples had spread around the world, which is interesting. They, we, we see them in all parts of the Roman Empire in Acts chapter 18 and 19. They're still out there teaching the preachings of John, not knowing fully about Jesus and his salvation. The only problem with their practice of fasting is that they were not aware that the anointed one, the Messiah, was already in their midst. Most of them had seen him, had heard him taught, maybe even had met him. This was not a time, and here's the point, this was not a time of fasting and mourning for those who were waiting the Messiah. This was not a time of fasting and mourning, but a time of feasting and rejoicing. Look at verse 34. For Jesus answers them, Can you make a wedding guest, or can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? No. We've been, we've been, we've been to weddings, right? There's a, there's a dinner, there's a buffet. What's the thing that we wait, you know, the, the, the biggest thing with weddings, it's, it's always one of those things, if I could change, you know, if I was king of the world, is let's have the wedding and let's eat right now. Forget about pictures, don't let's wait three hours afterwards and eat, but that's just one of the things that's just normal, I suppose. But Jesus, you know, that's neither here nor there. You can just cut that out of your, out of your whole mind. Jesus is using the everyday life of illustration of a wedding feast. A Jewish wedding celebration could last a week or more. Lydia, aren't you glad it doesn't last a week or more doing weddings? I guess if you could charge for it, that's one thing. But a wedding feast could last a week or more and was a great time of celebration with everyone joining in. In this illustration, Jesus is the bridegroom. Just as John the Baptist alluded to to the disciples, he had told them this. Look at here in your monitor in John chapter 3, 26. And they came to John. Speaking of John's disciples, John the Baptist, and they said, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, speaking of Jesus, to whom you bore witness, see, he's the one you said is the Son of God, look, he is baptizing, and everyone is going after him. We're losing people. That doesn't bother John, does it? Hey, I must decrease so that he may increase. Look at verse 27, and John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. Oh boy, we could understand that. You yourselves bear me witness that I am not the Christ, but I have sent before him. The one who has the bride is the what? Bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. This is not the time of preparing our hearts. This is now the time to respond to his call of repentance. And that means there is rejoicing, there is fasting, there is joy. Jesus is the center of attention, speaking again of a wedding. Now he is right. It's not a time to mourn, but rejoice. He's trying to get across to them by using this example. As he's looking around these, these men that are sitting around this table, he's trying to get across to them that one doesn't fast when there's joy. When, when there's good news. The Messiah, the anointed one, is here. He's breaking bread with you. He's drinking with you. He's looking at you and speaking with you. 
It's not appropriate to fast and mourn when the bridegroom is there. Solomon writes in Ecclesiastes, there is a time to weep, there's a time to laugh, there's a time to mourn and a time to dance. And the coming of the kingdom of God on earth brings celebration, not mourning. They're to celebrate Jesus' message and ministry rather than critiquing it. Sadly, many were blinded who Jesus was and his offer of the kingdom. However, this time of celebration will be interrupted. As he predicts in verse 35, if you're still there in Luke chapter 5. For Jesus says, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them. And then they will fast in those days. John MacArthur writes that this refers to the sudden removal or being snatched away violently. An obvious reference to Jesus' capture and crucifixion. So here we see an early clue of Jesus' earthly ministry coming to a sudden end. It says, then they will fast. An appropriate time for mourning was to be at the crucifixion of Jesus before that day of resurrection. In verses 36 to 39, Jesus uses two parables to emphasize why it was a time of celebration. Look at with me at Luke chapter 5. I believe it's here on the monitor, but also within your Bible, verse 36. Jesus also told them a parable. No one tears a piece from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins and it will be spilled, and the skins will be what? Destroyed. But new wine must be put into new, fresh wineskins. Now, again, Jesus is taking from everyday life something that they would understand, an illustration And this one he's referring to a new patch on old clothes, a new wine and new wineskins. The first illustration is the easiest for us to understand as one would have to pre-shrink a piece of cloth before sewing it onto a used piece of clothing. If not, when washed, the patch would begin to shrink, causing the stitching to come undone. But it also would not match the old, for that would be faded. So you wouldn't cut something new to repair something old. No, you, you might do the reverse, maybe, but you would never do the, the former. It just doesn't make sense. Now, the second illustration may be a little bit harder to understand, since we usually do not use animal skins to drink from in that form or fashion. If the, in the ancient world, wineskins were leather pouches made from animals that had held wine. They were soft and pliable, but they could become brittle with constant use. Eventually, they would have to be discarded since they would burst under pressure and strain of fermentation. A theologian D.R. Carson writes that the skin bottles for carrying these various fluids were normally made by killing and skinning animals, uh, sewing up all the things and leaving the fur on the outside and, and tanning the skin with special care to reproduce, you know, to, to produce these types of pouches. Eventually, such skin bottles would become brittle. And if new wine that is still fermenting and and bubbling up was stored in those old ones, those gases would easily exert enough pressure to split a bottle. Kind of imagine taking a a Coke or a a soda and putting it in the freezer for too long. Anyone ever done that? I'm not quite sure what would happen, but I would imagine that it would finally burst and someone would have to clean the the refrigerator. Most Usually it's me. I, I forget that all the time. 
So there if I, uh, new wine was placed in new wineskins, if all possible, because they would still be pliable and somewhat elastic and less likely to spit op- split open. So the contrast Jesus is making in this parable is the difference between new and old. The new cloth and the new wine represents the new teaching of Jesus, the new way of worshiping, the new expectations. In this discussion, Jesus is essentially saying that his message of the kingdom of God does not fit with the existing forms of religion and society that they were used to. Jesus is coming and saying there needs to be a change. And go back from the beginning. How many of us like change? The Mosaic law had been their law for centuries. And now all of a sudden here comes this man from backwater Nazareth telling them that things have changed. See, they're missing the whole point of who Jesus is. And his message. R.T. France writes that Jesus' message is a new perspective that replaces traditional ways of worship. Jesus is doing things differently. He's teaching, he's healing, he's feasting, and he's living. And this doesn't set well with the religious leaders. However, worship in the kingdom of God cannot be confined to the old forms. The wedding, the new wine, the new garments are all symbols of the new age, the new covenant that Jesus brings as the Messiah, the Anointed One. The ESV Study Bible writes that the kingdom of God cannot be regarded merely as a patch over the regulations of the Mosaic Law. It's not something that's being added to the law of Moses and all the extra-biblical traditions that the religious leaders have followed for their own self-righteous purposes. The point that Luke is emphasizing in this passage is that we cannot just add Jesus to our religious moral system. You know, we've we've heard about that with the gospel, uh, the American gospel. And by the way, if you've not seen that video, uh, watch that, the American gospel. This, this, what what was that term? The, I'm not going to have it more. Does anyone remember the term? Thank you. Moralistic therapeutic deism. That seems to be the spirit of, of the age, moralistic, uh, therapeutic deism, in which God is someone that I just add to my life to make me feel better. So many times we as pastors and churches, that's how we present Jesus, right? Oh, if you want your marriage to be better, if you want your kids to be better, if you want to network at work, if you want a better job, a better career, well then just add Jesus to it. It's just add Jesus and stir, man. That's all you need to do. And presto. You've got a new religion. And you think, well, that's not happening. Well, I've got some scary news to tell you here in a second. Because that's exactly what's happening. Let's take the Sermon on the Mount. Do not judge. Do good to everyone. Do all these things and just apply it to my life. It doesn't matter where my heart is. As long as I live these out and I say these woke things and all these things that that make people feel good, then I can feel good about myself. You've heard the term virtual signaling. The Pharisees, they started that. I think that's a word. I wonder what that word is in Greek. Because I bet you they have a word for virtual signaling. That's what's happening. Jesus is not just another solution to your problem. 
He can do all those things that I've just said, but only through the counsel of God's word. For God's word has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. It can make us holy, but it's just not sprinkling the things of, Bible in, of the Bible in, taking out what we don't like. That's what the Pharisees and other religious leaders were doing. Many people who were following Jesus, especially in his early ministry, were doing that exact thing. They were wanting to be healed, and they were being amazed with his teaching and his miracles. <coughs> Excuse me, but when things became tough, the majority did what to Jesus? They abandoned him. Matthew records that as Jesus was entering Jerusalem, most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And when the crowds went before him and followed him, they were shouting, Hosanna! To the Son of God, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Only to hear those exact same people several days later say, let him be crucified. Let him be crucified. Many are guilty of the same attitude even today. We're just adding Jesus to the mix of things to help us deal with the guilt or to prop up our own self-righteousness so that we can justify our thoughts, our actions, our behaviors, and our attitudes. But let me tell you, Jesus offers something much, much better than the Mosaic law of just regulations. A new survey, I read this just this morning. A new survey finds that a majority, now listen to this, a new survey finds that a majority of people who describe themselves as Christians accept a works-oriented means to God's acceptance. In other words, they believe that if I do A, B, C, D, and if I stop doing, you know, F, G, and K, or however the letters go there, then I can be accepted by God. And who doesn't want to be accepted by God? Most of us do or the God made in our own image, the God that we conjure up. But listen to this. 48%, uh, sorry, uh, no, I didn't get my notes right, but 52% of professing Christians believe that in a works-oriented salvation. 52% of those who profess to be Christians believe that you work your way to heaven. I'm so glad that's not the way it case. Because I know my own hearts. I see myself in the mirror in the morning at night. And there are times that I can't make eye contact with me, myself, because I know who I am. I know that I cannot make myself right with God, nor can you. The Bible says that all have sinned, all have come short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. All we, like sheep, have what? Gone astray. We have all turned to our own way. And not only that, is we want to bring others with us. Misery loves company. We want to have that pity party, but all the while we want them so that we can look ourselves up and say, look how good I am. At least I'm not as bad as my best friend here. He's really bad. That's what we do. The Bible says that that's not how God works. The Bible says there's no condemnation to those that are in Christ. See, we have a salvation that's much clearer and effective than that that the world offers. Take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 8. 
In Hebrews chapter 8 from Luke's gospel, we can learn three things concerning Jesus' message or mission. You can see these on the screen as you're turning to Hebrews 8, if you can do both. I guess I didn't think that through when I told you to turn and also look at the monitor. Get to Hebrews 8. But look at these three things. Jesus came to forgive sin and transform sinners. The Mosaic law could not do that. It required something of you. And by the way, the law is good and pure. But the law required something of you that you could not do. Seems unfair? Maybe. Of course, you and I are not God. So be careful how you answer that. You might show how you really think. But the Mosaic law required something that we could not do. So Jesus came to forgive sins and transform sinners. The law could not do that. Jesus came to call the despised and rejected of society. The law didn't do that. It sets you up as one who is, who is more spiritual. At least that's, that's not its intention, but that's what it had come by the time Jesus came. And then number three, Jesus came to set up a new structure, that new covenant that would embrace the profound reality that he was introducing that the kingdom of God is here. And the kingdom of God is beautiful and wonderful. But the kingdom of God will not become of your self-righteousness, of out of your duty, but by the grace of God. Amen? To those who do not deserve it. In Hebrews 5, 8, excuse me, chapter 8, verse 5, we learn that the tabernacle, the temple, and the Mosaic law was only temporary. It says they serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old. As the covenant he mediates is better. Since it's enacted on better promises. So we don't like change, but what if change is for the better? We like that, right? If someone says, hey, I want to give you a new job or a new raise, we're all for that change, right? This is what God is saying, is give me your mud pies and let me give you a beautiful chocolate pie. That's what he's saying. Jesus has given you something better. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. So Jesus comes and saying, yeah, that fasting prayer, that's good, but there's some fault with it. It cannot save. It points to God's holiness. It points to God. It points to something better. But all of it points to Christ, who does exactly what the law required. So remember, the law required something that we could not provide. God requires something that Jesus provides for us. The one who perfectly obeyed all things. One theologian writes in Table Talk magazine, the new covenant cannot be contained in the forms of rituals and the old covenant. So we could not take grace and, and shove it into the Mosaic law. The Mosaic law had no grace. It had law. You and I needed the gospel. Now we need the law to show us who God is and to see that there is a judgment. 
And let me tell you, if you want to live by self-righteousness, if you want to justify yourself by your own good works, then let me tell you, you are without hope when you stand before the one who will judge the living and dead and judge us according to our works. He will expose not just your good works, but he'll expose the attitude and behavior, the motivation behind those good works. And let me tell you, we will be, fell, uh, be shown wanting. Continue down in Hebrews chapter 8, look at verse 13. In speaking of the new covenant that Jesus is bringing, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So don't try to take a new piece of covenant and to sew it on to that old cloth because it's fading away. Now, John MacArthur writes that the true religion of the Old Testament was fulfilled in Christ. Now, Jesus is not replacing the Old Testament. He's fulfilling it. He becomes the one who does what God requires. He continues to write that he brought a new internal gospel of repentance and forgiveness. So he's replacing what was external with that which is internal. So in other words, the, the Mosaic law had no power to transform. But Jesus is bringing the internal power to transform. The gospel of repentance, forgiveness by grace cannot be mixed with the old Judaism misinterpretation of tradition and self-righteous works. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is absolutely unique, matchless, and exclusive. Yet Jesus knew that not everyone would accept his message. Remember when I said not everyone looks at cha loves change? Go back to Luke chapter 5. And once you're there, look at verse 39, the last passage. One verse we haven't looked at yet. Once Jesus tells them that, something new, something better, something more wonderful is coming. Jesus in that parable of the, the new piece of cloth and the new wine. And no one offering old wine, he says, no one offering old wine or drinking old wine desires new. For he says the old is good. Jesus is saying, what I'm offering is better. It's more excellent. But they won't want to change. They will want to stay with what they have. Many will reject Jesus and refuse the new covenant that is purchased by the blood and perfect obedience of Christ. They will prefer to justify themselves by their own self-righteousness. They're blinded to the truth that they are self-deluded and they stand in judgment for the rebellion against God. And my prayer is that any of you here listening to me or watching me on the internet or some other time down the road, that you would not be one of those that you would come and realize that God is calling sinners to repentance, that he is offering you grace and forgiveness of your sins. And if you think that Jesus doesn't want you, you're the exact person that he does want. Instead of trying to prove your righteousness before a holy God, you and I do embrace the words of Jesus found in Revelation chapter 22, verse 17, who cries, The Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let the one who hears, speaking of the gospel, come. 
and let the one who is thirsty, let the one who desires take the water of life without price. For that faith, that repentance, that gift of salvation comes at no cost other than to follow him. So that brings us then as we come near our closing to the second question. You forgot that one, didn't you? Second question is, should we be fasting today? Or is that just part of the Mosaic law? Is, is that a piece of cloth that should not be tied on? Is that a drink that we should not participate? Well, I, I believe that we still have fasting today. Jesus fasted. We see that fasting is part of Scripture. I believe it's one of the great spiritual or habits of grace that we ought to bring in our life. Fasting for spiritual purpose communicates an earnestness and intensity for God. It says that we're desiring something so much that we want to demonstrate our humbleness and our weakened spirit. It gives physical expression to a spiritual hunger. It can be for spiritual renewal, for guidance, for healing, for resolution of problems. Enabling us to pray more specifically and strategically. So I believe it is still one of the habits, I would say, one of the spiritual disciplines that you and I ought to participate in today. It's not required, but I believe it is good. It's through fasting and prayer we humble ourselves before God so the Holy Spirit will stir our souls and awaken our churches. You'll see here on the monitor just some ways, five reasons here real quickly, the fast. Fasting is a cry for God's mercy. Maybe there's something that you're experiencing in life and you desire his mercy. And so you may take a time of fasting to pray for that. It's an expression of sadness. Maybe it's a a show of, of repentance. It's a plea for God's intervention. It's a longing for understanding. It's a preparation for battle. So fasting is a spiritual gift that you and I, or a spiritual discipline that you and I should put in our toolbox. It's that habit of grace we should acquire. It's a skill to learn so that we may pray better and stronger and more effectively. So if we end with this, the question then, if we're sitting around Jesus and we're noticing that he wants us to worship differently, not out of self-righteousness, not out of duty and not out of trying to justify ourselves, then how then do you and I live in this new community? How should we live while we're awaiting Christ's return? Now, this is not a time of mourning, but we are looking forward to Christ's return. Well, he tells us here in Titus 2, 11 through 13. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us. Here's how we live. Until Christ returns, he trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions to live self-controlled upright and godly lives in this present age waiting for the blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great god and savior jesus christ would you commit to that this morning prayer and fasting is a big part of that christ has come to do something wonderful and you and i need to be offering that to others turn away repent of trying to make yourself right with God. For Jesus has done exactly what you need. Would you come and accept that free gift of grace and salvation today? There we head bowed and every eye closed. Just take a moment as the worship team comes up. And I'm going to ask Randy to also come on up right behind with me. 
It's a time to pause before we go on and just consider the words from Luke, the words from the good doctor, the words from Scripture, from the Holy Spirit. And to consider what has been said here this morning and then lift up a prayer. Lord, how would you want me to respond? Is there self-righteous attitudes that I have? Are there ways in which I have not given over my life fully to you? Are there ways in which you've asked me through your word to change an attitude, a behavior that I, I just don't want to do because of the change? Are you trusting in anything else other than Christ for salvation? If so, would you just ask the Holy Spirit to work in your heart and I just challenge you, respond to his will today. If you have a question after the message, Randy, I, Landon will be here. We'd like to pray with you if you'd like that. If you'd like to know more about that salvation, if you'd like to know more how you can incorporate fasting and prayer in your life, please let me know. I'd love to be able to share that with you. But with that, I'm going to ask Randy to come. And he's going to close us before song with a prayer, pastor's prayer. We hope you have enjoyed this week's message. We encourage you to share it with others. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at info at orangevilla.org. Be sure and join us for next week's message by subscribing to this podcast. To learn more about our ministry, submit prayer requests, or to find ways you can help hear the gospel, visit us online at orangevilla.org. Till next time, we hope the grace and peace of God's love be ever present in your life.